this morning, we just got to get right into it. And I'll tell you, as I was preparing this morning, I, we were, I was planning to look at Titus chapter 2, and we are going to look at that. You can be turning there. I was thinking we would do verses 1 through 10, and as, we were, as I was going through that, I realized I had at least two messages. Uh, so I thought, well, I could still get them out before noon, uh, or we could divide it between two weeks. So we're going to divide it between two weeks, uh, but still a lot this morning, so I'm just going to uh, jump right into it. This passage in Titus, uh, he's been talked, Paul's been writing to Titus, telling him, look, you need to appoint leaders. We've got a, lo- a lot of young churches on the island of Crete. They need help. They need leadership. They need guidance. And then he says here in verse two, or excuse me, chapter two, he begins to tell Titus, look, I also have instructions for older men, for older women, for younger women, for younger men, and also for slaves. And so um, we're gonna look at, we're gonna read the, all 10 verses this morning, and then we're gonna focus in on the instructions to the women this morning, ladies first, uh, verses three, four, and five. Uh, so before we just jump into it, um, a couple of things that I want to just mention, uh, because this is, we, I kind of hinted on this a, a couple of weeks ago. Verse 5, um, it, it's got this, this phrase that uh, women should be working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands. And this right away, am I getting laughter already? Uh, but this, this right away is, a, is it's not even a whole verse, it's just a phrase that people would want to cherry pick out of the Bible and then argue that Christianity is oppressive to women, patriarchal, archaic, and no longer relevant for us today because we're beyond that. We've moved beyond that type of thinking in our culture and in our world. Um, And that's not even, we could just throw the whole thing out because it doesn't even matter anymore. And so I wanna have, just give a couple of comments uh, um, that really just applies to study of scripture in general, but Uh, is good when we're looking at a a text like this that might have some controversy in it. So uh, a couple of of ways to look at the text, and I think I've got a slide for this. Exegesis, all right, this is the proper interpretation of scripture. It's looking at the Bible, it's what we try to do every week. We look at the Bible, we read it, we try to understand what does it say, and what does that mean? How does that apply to my life? We're, we're, we're taking what the text says and taking the meaning out of the text and applying it to our lives, okay? So then also on the slide is uh, the, the, an, another way to interpret scriptures through eisegesis, and this is dangerous. This is when I take my preconceived ideas and read the text and create my own understanding. This is not, uh, this is not good. And this could happen innocently enough. So for example, you've read this chapter before, probably at some time in your life, you kind of have an idea of what it means and you have some ideas of how you can apply it to your life. And so you could read the text this morning and just reapply something that you already have understanding of, or we could read the text and say, Lord, would you teach me? Would you help me to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly. But then it could also be very dangerous when you have somebody who feels like the Bible is archaic and irrelevant, and they read this text and they say, women are to be submissive. See, throw this thing out. I knew it. We we can't, there's no value in this book. So there's, there's two ways to do it. Exegesis is what we should all strive for. So instead of 
Instead of eisegesis reading into it, we're going to read out of it. We're gonna take it and let it shape us instead of taking our ideas and trying to shape the scripture around it. So exegesis is what we do. It's a big word, but it's what we do every week. Hopefully it's what's happening in our Bible studies and small groups throughout the week. Hopefully that's what you're doing as you open the word at home uh, any day of the week. So um, how do we, how do we, exegete or how do, we, how do we interpret, how do we get out of the scripture what God's saying and not apply our own thoughts and ideas to it? So a couple of rules. Generally speaking, the Bible says what it means. It's obvious enough, but it has to be said, okay? Generally speaking, now, there is poetry, there is prophecy, there are allegories, there are different types of literature within the scripture, but generally speaking, um, if there is a plain meaning in the text, it's because there is, uh, God is communicating to us plainly, okay? Sometimes though, that does leave us kind of like, I don't get that, it just doesn't, like if that's the meaning, well what about this, and what about this? So um, there is the historical context of the passage that we should consider. And so we've already talked about what, what is the historical context here. We've talked about Paul, he's writing to Timothy, and he's telling Timothy, look, you've gotta teach these churches, we need leaders. Uh, we, can, we can know from history that the island of Crete was, a, was a, um, uh, an island full of ports, there were mercenaries that lived there, a uh, lot of activity, a very immoral culture, uh, it, was, uh, it was a lot of pagan worship on the island. We know those things are true, so that helps us to have understanding. So we can ask ourselves as we're reading, uh, who wrote the passage? Who was the passage written to? How would the intended audience have understood what they were reading or what they were being told? Uh, what's happening at the time? What's the culture? So those are some que- good questions we can ask. Historical context, but then there is also biblical context. And that just means, what did, the, what did the chapter before say? What did the chapter after say? What is the general idea of the book or the section of scripture that we're, we're reading? And then how does that fit into the big picture um, of scripture? And so those are kind of the ways we look at, at the scripture and we put it all together uh, for, for understanding. So um, as we look at this passage this morning, I just kind of mentioned some of the historical context of the island of Crete. Titus is on the island. Paul is writing to Titus to give him instructions on in how he can build and encourage and strengthen the churches. Um, in, in the biblical context, um, this, this book is, is written to a church leader, to strengthen church leaders. In the greater context, much of the new script, excuse me, New Testament scripture is written for our sanctification. How do we live life in a way that imitates Christ, in a way that is God-honoring, in a way that is reverent towards God. Much of the New Testament scripture helps us in those things. And, and certainly this passage that we're gonna look at this morning is one of those passages that helps us to understand how we should be living our lives. Next week, because uh, I said what's happening before, what's happening in the text we're reading, what's happening after. Um, we're gonna spend two weeks on, on these instructions and then there is the doctrine, this idea that we were saved and part of our salvation trains us to live in this way that we're reading about this morning. So uh, let me pray, we're gonna read all 10 verses and then we're gonna focus on verses three, four, and five. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that we can uh, be here this morning. As Sarah said, we have the freedom to be here, to worship freely, uh, to open your word freely. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would freely work in this place this morning. Give us understanding uh, in the way that you would have us to understand this text. Uh, Lord, help us to apply these things to our lives. Lord, I pray that um, our time of studying the word this morning would strengthen our faith. Uh, and increase our influence in our community and in our families and in this church. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Titus chapter two, verse one. But as for you, Paul, writing to, uh, to Titus, as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. All right, we're gonna focus on uh, three, four, and five this morning, and uh, next week we'll look at the instructions to the men. So in, in verse, uh, verse three, it says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. So likewise, I think, is an important word. Similarly, in, 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 he had instruction to the older men, um, and, and it talks about them being reverent, them being dignified, and similarly, women are to be reverent to God in all their behavior. Uh, they should, it's, it's kind of a, a blanket statement. You should live your life in a way that honors God. Um, 1 Corinthians 10.31 concludes kind of in a similar blanket statement. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. All of your life, all of your actions, all of your words should honor the Lord. Living a God-honoring life. And I, I'll say this, and I said this when we looked at the passage uh, in chapter 1 to the elders. Yes, this is a, a passage specifically to a group of people, in this case, older women, but these biblical principles apply to all of us. Uh, Paul, knowing what was going on on the island of Crete, wanted to give these specific instructions to the older women, but much of it applies to Christian living in general. So there's this blanket statement that uh, older women should be reverent in behavior, should be God-honoring, living a life for the Lord. It continues not slanderers. We're just gonna kind of stop at each one and, and just talk about each word. This is a very interesting um, word. Uh, you could, trans some of your translations say, not false accusers. The Greek word is diabolos. So let me tell you, 30, 38 times this word shows up in the New Testament. Three times, 
it, it's either translated, you know, either slanderer or a false accuser. 35 times translated as devil. All right, so when, you, when we're in Matthew chapter four, Jesus was tempted by the devil. The, the devil took Jesus up to the top of the temple. The devil offered Jesus the bread. The devil took him up to the mountain and said, all this could be yours. It's the same word, diabolos. And, 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 and so we know, who, who is Satan? He's the father of lies. He's the accuser of the brethren. Uh, he's a false accuser. He does not speak truth. And other translations say, do not be a malicious gossip. And we all know what gossip is, right? Idle talk, rumors about people, especially if they're not there, we like to talk about them. Um, and and the, the problem with this kind of talk is often what has been said is speculative. It's not necessarily what's true, it's what we think to be true. And, uh, and, and you know when the gossip train gets going, the tales just get bigger and more imaginative and more dramatic. We're making assumptions about what is true of another person. And this goes right back to the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments. The, the uh, Ninth Commandment is, you shall not bear false witness about your neighbor. Essentially, uh, gossip, slandering turns into a lot of false witness. Uh, Sarah sh shared this quote with me uh, from Pete Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, listen to this. Every time I make an assumption about someone who has hurt me or disappointed me, and I would argue whether you're hurt or disappointed or not, every time you make an assumption about someone and you don't confirm it, I believe a lie about this person in my head. This assumption is a misrepresentation of reality. Because I have not checked it out with the other person, it is very possible I am believing something that is not true. It is also likely I will pass that false assumption around to others. You guys familiar with this kind of activity? You don't have to be an older woman to be listening to this, this text this morning. All right, so Pete Scazzaro continues and he really gets down to what's the real issue here when, when there's this kind of talk. When we leave reality for a mental creation of our own doing, that's an assumption. When we leave reality for a mental creation of our own doing, we create a counterfeit world. When we do this, it can properly be said that we exclude God from our lives because God does not exist outside of reality and truth. In doing so, we wreck relationships by creating endless confusion and conflict. Anybody created, ever created confusion and conflict in a relationship because of talking, right? Talking about a person instead of talking to the person. And so, um, this is, this is, this is a, a big deal and it's applicable to all of us. Anytime any one of us would questions somebody, question a person's character or question a person's conduct, where do we go? Where should we go? Directly to that person. 
and have a conversation with them. Instead, too often, we will just go to whoever's closest or whoever we feel like would uh, kind of get the rumor mill going with us. But the, uh, the, the correct thing, the right thing to do is to go to the person, find out the truth. Satan is the father of lies. He is a slanderer. He is a false accuser. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He came from the father full of grace and truth. And so uh, we have to, have to, have to, whether it's in our families, whether it's uh, in our workplace, whether it's in this, this, this body of Christ, or out in the community. When we, when we have a question about somebody, we go to the person, we don't talk about them, we talk to them. Okay, he con- continues this instruction. Reverend in behavior, not slanderers, or not slaves to much wine. And we talked about this um, uh, two weeks ago when we were, it's a very similar instruction to the elders, not given to much wine. This is not a slave to much wine. And we uh, talked about it a a little bit. We kind of went into it a little bit. But the bottom line is, if you are under the influence of alcohol, you are pushing out the influence of the spirit. All right, that's that's a dangerous, dangerous uh, place to be. And so we talked a couple weeks ago, we don't, we don't see how close to the line we can get before we start sinning. The wise thing to do is stay away from the line. And, uh, and so alcohol is a dangerous thing that's ruined many lives, it's ruined many families. Scripture doesn't say forbid the use of it, but I would urge you, and I think Paul would urge you to be very careful about it and to stay away from this idea of being under the influence of alcohol. And then we get a little bit of positivity. What, so what are they, that's not what, the, what they're not supposed to be doing. What are older women supposed to be doing? They are to teach what is good and train the young women. Teach what is good and train the young women. This, is, this goes right back to Jesus' instructions in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus told his disciples before he ascended to heaven, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Doing what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is, this is a discipleship, we call it. This is mentoring. This is bringing up uh, the ch- children in the way they should go. Now, we're talking about older women to younger women. We're maybe not talking about little kids in the home at this point, but we are all to be disciple makers. And so for the older women, because this is in this text this morning, this is an instruction to you. Who are you encouraging to live according to sound doctrine? I'd ask the men the same question. Who are, we, who are we teaching to observe all that Christ commanded us? Um, Jesus said that we should do it, and here Paul is saying, uh, and we'll talk about the men next week, but the women are to be teaching the younger women. We are all involved in this process of teaching, of disciple-making, of encouraging, of training. But in verse four here in Titus chapter two, he does transition from the older women to the younger women. As the older women train the younger women, what are they to train them to do? Uh, first off, to love their husbands and children. And, and maybe as we, as we continue, 
might just ask this question, what distinguishes an older woman from a younger woman or, or a, an older man from a younger man? And, and the, just the bottom line is it doesn't say. And so in my mind, I'm thinking about um, perhaps a, a, a man or a lady who have raised their kids. You know, they've kind of, they've been married for a while, they've learned a thing or two about life, they kind of know a thing or two about a family, um, they've made some mistakes, they've done some things right, the Lord's been teaching them, and this is, the, this is the picture that I create of an older man or woman. Now whether that's really true or not, I think it's safe to say, um, at, at any point in your life where you look and you, you see somebody who could use teaching, who could use training, who could use instruction, and you say to yourself, man, I've been there before, I've experienced that before, then this is the younger person that you have opportunity to teach. And so it doesn't exclude uh, a 20-year-old from being the older woman or older man, uh, but it also would, doesn't exclude uh, s someone who is later in years from being involved in this idea of teaching and disciple-making. So uh, in this case, though, it seems like these young women that are, are being spoken of are married and have a family, love their husbands and their children. And you think, you know, we were at the wedding uh, last weekend, and, and some, of, some of you were, and you think to yourself, man, Johnny and Lisa, they're so happy together. You know, they're just getting off into a good start in life. Why, who would have to teach Lisa to love Johnny? Like, isn't that why they got married? They're in love. <laughs> man, life's hard sometimes, isn't it? Um, guys, we're not always easy to love, are we? Ladies, are your guys always easy to love? <laughs> what about our kids, though? Who has to tell a mother to love their kid? You know, most mothers are love or are fiercely loving and, and protective and nurturing of their kids. Who has to teach a mother? And yet, the scripture here says, older women need to train the younger women how to love their husbands and their children. And so when we think about love, we think one thing when we read the scripture about love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is not arrogant, love does not envy, and, go, and continues, we think, oh, yeah, I might need a little bit of help with that. So older women are to teach the younger women what it means to love their husbands when their husbands aren't so easy to love and how to love their kids when their kids aren't being the perfect little angels they are when they go to grandma and grandpa's house. Again, this passage applies to all of us, really. Don't we all need help loving? I thought about this, especially with Pastor Darrell's message last week. Anybody, anybody who needs some help being loving or acting in a loving and kind way, go to, go to your, your Bible this afternoon, get out 1 Corinthians chapter 13, write down verses four through seven, stick it in your pocket as a little reminder of what love is. We could all, all use that little reminder. And Darryl would, Pastor Darrell would probably encourage you, don't stick it in your pocket, put it in your memory. Memorize what it means. We could all use help there. So he continues. Um, the young women need, need to be taught how to love their husbands and their children, how to be self-controlled, how to be pure, 
working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. I'm gonna cherry pick a little bit here. This idea, or these ideas of being self-controlled, of being pure, of being kind, uh, these, are, these are things that get taught on kind of regularly. You could look at uh, Galatians 5, and 23, the fruits of the spirit where these are in there. You could look at Philippians 4, verse 8, where it teaches us that we should be thinking certain ways and we should be um, thinking pure thoughts. And that these are sort of like the, the basic things that we talk about. And everybody wants to know, what's Pastor Jeff going to say about working at home and being submissive to your husband? So that's where we're going to go, because um, why ignore the question that's really in the air? Working at home. So this is a, an interesting word and, and there's a little bit of debate of what's the right word there. There's some, uh, there's, there's, there's two words, okioros, and again, pardon my Greek, I don't know how to pronounce things properly, okioros though, and orkiorgos, there's a G in there. And so some would say it should be one word and some should say, would say it'd be the other word. So what does it mean? It's a compound word, it means either housekeeper, or house worker. So they're very two similar words. Uh, so this idea of being a housekeeper would be uh, more along the ideas of being the manager of the house or even the uh, guardian of the house, the keeper of the house. And so um, some would argue this is talking about the spiritual well-being of the home and the nurturing that takes place in the home and the, and the, 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 the young women should learn how to do that. And then others, um, other fragments of text that, are, that, are, uh, that we have would have this other word, okioros, minus the G, same word, there's not a G there, and, and, and would indicate, well, it's a, the basic idea is just a house worker, someone who works in the home. And so uh, this translation that we're reading from this morning, ESV says, working at home, um, I believe the um, King James versions would use the word, have this idea of, of keeping the home. Um, so let me say this, the, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the present reality of women in the first century. This is the, the historical context. Where were women in the first century? They were in the home. That, that is the, the reality of most women in the first century. They were in the home and Paul's saying, you should be at work when you're there. Now the question is, what were they doing in the home? Well, some of them were cooking and cleaning and doing laundry and taking care of the, taking care of the kids. In many homes, though, that would be reading this passage in the first century, they had slaves. The slaves did the cooking, did the cleaning, kept the kids. Maybe the kids did that, and the women weren't actually doing that work. So, you know, we have this word in our uh, culture today, a housekeeper. What does a housekeeper do? Cooks and cleans and does laundry. Well, that's... that's eisegesis, right? That's taking our cultural understanding of a word and applying it to the scripture instead of exegesis, what is the word in the scripture and applying it to our lives. And then um, in the first century, many households would actually be a combination of the home and the workplace. You know, there weren't factories, there weren't big banks, there, weren't, uh, there was an industry where you get in your car and you, and you leave for the day. Now, obviously there was some of that, would, no cars, but you would leave the home for the day, but much of business, men and women, their business was within the home and they were uh, producing their goods or they were uh, farmers and they were taking care of, of the land. 
And so this isn't a derogatory text. Women were in the home, and Paul's saying, when you're there, you shouldn't be idle. You should be working. And so, um, so we can, here's, now here's, this is what I will say, and, and really I'm, you know, I don't know, out of the pot and into the pan or whatever. I'm getting myself off the hook. I could just say, look, it's, this is just a historical context. We just have to understand this is first century culture. We don't have to, we don't have to worry about that today. Chapter two, verse one, how we started. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So there is a sense that, yeah, this is applicable to first century, but it has to be applicable to us today. This is what accords with sound doctrine. This doesn't apply to first century living and now we ignore it. So what does it mean for us today? Well, I would argue that uh, if, if Paul was writing today, he would be writing to women where they were. Some women are at home during the day. Some women are at work during the day. Some women are at home during the day sleeping because they're at work at night and doing healthcare. So uh, our, our cultural context changes, but what is this verse saying? It's, it's saying, um, don't be idle. You know, there's, there is something for everyone to do. I think there is also, though, um, another context there. If we were to go back to, to Genesis, when God created Adam, Adam was alone in the garden, and what did God say? It's not good for man to be alone. And so he created a woman. And, and, the, and so there's arguments and questions. What does it mean that the, the woman was a helper suitable for the man? And I would just say, the man had his weaknesses, and women have their strengths. And, and men have their uh, uh, strengths, and women have weaknesses. And so God created men, and he created women. They complement each other to create something that's greater than if they were just on their own. And so uh, what that looks like in your home might look a little bit different in my home, and it might look a little bit different in somebody else's home. But uh, I would argue men and women both should be working at home, and I think there's a context here that the, 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 um, the emotional well-being of a home, the spiritual well-being of a home, the trajectory of a home is greatly influenced by both the father and the mother. And so when it says here that women are to be working at home, I think it's working towards creating part of that culture, their contribution to a family that is God-honoring, God-loving, God-serving, and God-seeking. So working at home, submissive to their husbands. Now this isn't really a, a, a passage that's teaching on the marriage relationship. Um, Titus would probably be aware of the passage in Ephesians chapter five where Paul takes some time and he's talking to the men and to the women um, about what a husband looks like and, and what a wife looks like. And this is a reminder since he is uh, writing to women uh, in, this, in this verse, it's a reminder that women are to be submissive to their own husbands. Um, and that would bring to mind, I'm sure, to Titus, this teaching that Paul has in Ephesians. And we're not going through Ephesians right now, but um, let me make a couple of comments. The Christian life is full of paradoxes, right? We must die so that we can live. You must give in order to receive. In order to be first, you must be last. In order to be exalted, you must humble yourself. 
If you want to lead, you must be a servant. And, uh, and so this, one of those is humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. And we don't like that. Our culture says don't humble yourself. Don't submit to anybody, right? Fight for your rights. Me first. What do I need? Take care of myself. And once I take care of myself, then I'll take care of you. So the idea of of submission really rubs us the wrong way. And the reality is that a Christian should be strong, should be capable, should be empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish great things. And at the same time, in complete submission to God, always. And then at times, scripture says, we are also called to submit to authorities, to employers, to parents, to church leaders, and in this case, wives to their own husbands. So I think that sometimes the, the accusation about this teaching or uh, the, the thing that we push up against, it's like to say, we're being oppressive to women because they must submit, but when we look at the biblical teaching, there's calls to submission for all of us, all throughout scripture. Um, and so, a couple of things to note. It says, Uh, that the young women are to be submissive to their own husbands. Women are not called to be submissive to men, but wives are called to be submissive to their husbands. There's a huge distinction there. And part of the, the issue that we have is that sin has polluted what a beautiful picture that marriage is. Sin in our lives has polluted what God intended for good. And so when we resist the biblical teaching about marriage, a lot of times it's because we have either seen or are afraid of an unbiblical marriage so, or an unbiblical interaction between husband and wife when it comes to um, submission. And so uh, what, does that, what does that unhealthy relationship look like? Well, it could look like a husband who is passive and doesn't, doesn't lead his wife or his family. Uh, and another abuse of that would be a husband that's domineering and has his wife and his children under their thumbs. And that's not what the Apostle Paul's calling husbands to do. Of course, we're not talking about husbands here, but um, he is talking to the wives. And so when sin enters into a relationship and, and, and um, in, in this area of submission, then a wife could be uh, rebellious, trying to control, trying to um, influence in, in, a, in a sinful way, to have control over her husband. Uh, the other side of that is, is where a wife would be silenced and think, I don't, I, don't get in, I don't get a say, I don't have any input. I'm not allowed to speak my mind. These both would be on the, on the wrong side of, of things. But submission is where um, a wife submitting to her husband is where she, because she loves the Lord and understands the, the truth of God's word, would joyfully submit to her husband. And, and, and this is a perfect relationship we're talking about where the husband would be loving his wife just as Christ loved the church and he would be a joy to submit to. Um, I was thinking about this. Think about with me the relationship between God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A perfect relationship, right? 
Um, we don't, do we, let me ask you, do we see any dis, discontentment? Anyone disgruntled? Anyone think it's unfair between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how their relationship works? No. Of course, this is a perfect relationship. They're all equally God. They're all completely divine, and yet as we read the scriptures, they have different roles. Um, for example, in, in our salvation, it was Jesus who came to earth and died on the cross for our sins. And yet as we read through the gospels, we, we, we see that Jesus repeatedly says that he is there on the Father's behalf, that he does what the Father asks him to do, that he submits his will to the will of the Father. So the, the Father seems to be, have the plan, he's in heaven and he sent Jesus to the cross and he died on the cross for our sins. And then we see scripture tells us the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead and from the, the same spirit that was in Christ when he was raised from the dead is now within us. So there's the Holy Spirit's role. He's changing us and he's empowering us to do the things that we are called to do. You, you could read all kinds of verses in the New Testament that would support that. Let me just read two. In John chapter five, verse 19, Jesus said to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus submitting what he did to what the father would have him to do. Then in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, Peter is speaking to Cornelius, explaining how John the Baptist came, and then how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equal, all divine, but they had different roles and they were in perfect harmony. So who would say it's not a fair setup? It's not fair that God got to stay in heaven and call the shots. It's not fair uh, that Jesus didn't have more of a voice in how things go. It's not fair uh, that the Holy Spirit's really the one getting all the work done, but the, all, the Father and the Son get the glory. We don't talk like that. But it's also a perfect relationship. And so sin is within the marriage relationship and it gets polluted. Uh, let me read another quote to you. This one's from Stephen Cole. This is what he says about marriage. Christian marriage is to be a counter-cultural witness to a selfish world where everyone is fighting for his or her rights. The world should look at a Christian marriage and instantly see the difference. They should see a Christian husband tenderly and selflessly loving his wife as Christ loved the church. They should see a Christian wife joyfully submitted, submitting to and respecting her husband, always seeking his good. The world should see Christian children obeying their parents and the parents lovingly and patiently training their children in the ways of the Lord. There should be a big difference between a Christian family and a, and a non-Christian family. Obviously, we must rely on the work of the Holy Spirit to do that, and there's still sin, and there's still issues, but this is what we are striving for. Older women should teach the younger women uh, how to be how to love their husbands and children, how to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. And here's why, that the word of God may not be reviled. It's all for the glory of God. We're not, again, we're not talking about husbands, but as a husband lays down his, his, his uh, 
life for his family, as he loves his family, as Christ loved the church, and as a, as a wife submits to her husband and children obey their parents, we strive for this so that the word of God may not be reviled. We don't want someone to look at us and say, if that's what a Christian looks like, that's not what I see in the Bible and I'm not gonna have anything to do with it. But by our living, we should, be, uh, we should have people, our hope, our prayers, that people would look and say, man, they don't have it all together. They're not perfect, I know, but they've got something going and I wanna know what that is. That's what I need in my life. And so I think as, as in this passage, as we talk about the older women, as we talk about the younger women, next week we'll talk about the older men and the younger men. Paul's trying to paint the, uh, a picture here of a, of, a, of a loving family unit that honors God, that loves God, that serves God. And what does it look like within the family to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower? And, 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 and we'll look at it a little bit more, this idea of the word of God not being reviled next week. It is so that we represent Christ well to the world. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter five, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. So by our living, we would bring honor and glory and praise to the Father, not to ourselves. We're gonna leave it there uh, for, this, for this week. Um, important verses, because it's really, what I see in these verses is Paul is calling out to the women, and, it's, and he's saying to the women, women, we need you. We need you as teachers, as instructors, as role models. Uh, older women for the younger women. Uh, older women and the younger women for the children. Uh, we, we need strong, godly women within our homes, within our church, and within the community so that we correctly model to the world what a changed life looks like because Jesus has come in and saved us. Because we've said to, to, to God, we've recognized we're a sinner, we need a savior, we need a life change because on this trajectory that we're on without God, it's not good. But when God comes in, he changes our life. He starts to make us more and more like his son until one day we will be with him and we will be like him, scripture tells us. Let's, let's pray together. Jim and, and Norma Jean are gonna be available to pray uh, with you this morning. Um, I'm sure some elders and, and their wives would, be, would love to pray with you this morning. If, if anything we've talked about this morning, as you bow your head, it says just um, got you thinking about how you're living your life. Could be a man this morning, it could be a, a woman this morning. Like I said, these... these um, some of this is very specific, and yet so much of this uh, is so applicable for each one of us. As we seek to honor you, Lord, would, your, would you send your Holy Spirit within us? Lord, we know your Spirit's in us because you've saved us. But Lord, we need you today. We need you this week to live a life that reflects the Son. Lord, we just ask that as we consider uh, this passage this morning and as we uh, consider your word on a daily basis, Lord, uh, give us the, the heart 
to commit to submit ourselves to you first of all, Lord. Give us a heart to say, not my will, but yours be done in my life today, just like Jesus said in the garden. Lord, would you, uh, would you change us from within so that we could live a life that would be uh, reverent before you, that would be honoring to you, that would uh, invoke change in others. Lord, that by the way we lived, others would be drawn to you. Lord, we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.